Hi, I'm Will Levesque. He's Eric Laville, and you're tuning into Levesque and Claville. We tell it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective, because it's like that. So let's get right to the show. The Tulsa Race Massacre, the 100th year anniversary of this tragedy that happened uh, May 31, June through June 1st. Um, and, you know, I pause because I'm just thinking about this, this anniversary that remains one of the worst incidences that um, of race violence in the U.S. in its history. And for a long time, it was one of the least known. And so now here we are, you know, 100 years later, um, remembering, commemorating, and paying attention to this tragedy that has had long-lasting effects. And to just give you some idea, when it initially happened, the um, Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially said and recorded that 36 people died. And it took several years to 2001 for a state commission to really examine the events and conclude and confirm that um, actually of the estimates of uh, scholars of around 300 people is what actually happened. So now, you know, 2001 um, race riot commission report says that 100 and 300 people were killed and more than uh, 8,000 people were made homeless over the 18 hours in 1921. And again, as we see uh, analysis coming forth now, History Channel is actually having a feature on this. One of the things that's being brought out is how this incident, this massacre that happened 100 years ago continues to have long-standing effects now in topics that we've been talking about on this show, like wealth building, um, trauma, continues to be uh, in play even today, Eric. You know, Will, uh, there's a lot to unpack. But first, before I do so, I want to mention their names. I want to say their names. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Viola Fletcher, 107 years old. Her younger brother, U.S. Army veteran, Hughes Van Ellis, mm -hmm. 100 years old. And... Miss Lessie Benningfield Randall, 106 years old, respectively. Mm. These are the three known survivors who witnessed this massacre firsthand. Mm. Well, nobody knows the mind of God. Nobody knows the complete plan of God. Right. But we may be able to say, in part, that God allowed these three to survive, to live over 100 years old, just in part so that they could put their eyewitness testimony on record forever right, in the halls of our government. After the years, after the days, after the hours, after the efforts to suppress this demonic, despicable, terrible acts of our citizens in our country against other citizens of their own city, 
you have to sit back and pause. You have to sit back and pause. Well, you go when you say that. Uh, well, I mean, when you say that, you know, you really go to the heart of what happened here. Because when you say citizens and our citizens, what you're finding is that it's at a time in this country when black people still looked upon as being less than human and certainly not citizens at all, mm -hmm. even coming out of slavery and coming out of the Civil War. And at this point, we're now in the World War I era where, mm -hmm. in fact, you have Black people who have fought in every war in this nation's history. Absolutely. And we're coming back and in, in fought in World War I. Valid. Soldiers. Valid, absolutely. And came back. And a big part of why this happened was because of Black people showing and proving that all of the lies that had been told already for generations since mm -hmm. uh, our people arrived at the shores in the 1600s and, and prior to that, all of those uh, lies were being shown to be exactly that through what was happening at Black Wall Street in, in the community of Greenwood. Because what you had was African-Americans who, despite all of the racism, despite all of the discrimination, despite living in a segregated city, were actually uh, vibrant, had actually lifted themselves up through faith, through entrepreneurship, through education. They had a vibrant community. And then, like I said, they had soldiers who had come back from World War I who were contributing to the community, and they came back very much with a different sense of citizenship because they had gone and fought on behalf of the nation. So you had this vibrant community that was that was existing, totally putting to, to shame the lie of Black inferiority. And this was very much at the root of what kicked off the massacre. Because there's a very familiar theme here about what sparked the incident. You had a Black man. Yes. Apparent, supposedly right. inappropriately engaging with a white woman, which eventually was found to be totally unfounded. Yeah, that happened. And so, talk about that. Talk about it, um, uh, Eric. So, talk about what happened. So, Will, uh, to, to, to your point, um, I, I want to explain what Greenwood was. Greenwood was a district uh, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was located on Greenwood Avenue, and this area of Greenwood was a thriving business district known as Black Wall Street. This is where African-Americans, during the time of Jim Crow, by the way, I want to point that out, during the time Absolutely. of Jim Crow and segregation, immediately after the World War, World War I, and one year post the last world pandemic of the 1918-1920 flu pandemic. Right. So I want us to look at this in global. Right. Enough. It's still not far out of out, outside of the Civil War, you know. Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> I mean, look at this in global, right? Look at all of the social, economic, war, and health issues that are existing, not just in that area, in the country, but in the world. Mm -hmm. But yet and still. Yet and still. It was thriving so much, they called it Wall Street. And we know what happens on Wall Street. Money never sleeps. Right. That means there was so much business going on. 
blacks were prosperous in spite of right. what I just mentioned. Now, what started this, um, the massacre began during Memorial Day weekend, all right? It was after a 19-year-old, his name was Dick Roller, he was a shoe shiner. <laughs> he was accused of assaulting a white female who was 17 on an elevator. Uh, right. Well, a 17-year-old who was a, she was an elevator operator right. at the nearby building. Right. Uh, she screams, he leaves. So all of a sudden, the assumption uh, is he had to The assumption. Done, exactly. Yeah, the assumption. Have done something inappropriate. I mean, we've seen this, right? Um, let's look at modern history. Central Park Five. That's right. Let's go back to the U.S. Supreme Court case, which uh, laid so many landmark uh, 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 not uh, landmark legal principles created. Uh, landmark legal principles. The Scottsboro Boys, nineteen. Scottsboro Boys. You know, young men who were accused of the same thing. Okay, and, and of course at, Emmett Till. Of course Emmett, Emmett Till. Till. Let's look at the most egregious uh, act of violence upon a boy who whistled. Okay, will whistle. Mm. So what happens is they take. Uh, Mr. Rowland, who's a shoe shiner, in the custody. After the arrest, rumors spread through the city, we're going to lynch him. Now, this was also at the height of lynching because it was after the Civil War, after slavery, but during the time of sharecropping, where, and then during the time of Jim Crow, where lynchings reached a, a very high level. And again, lynchings came out of um, basically putting black men and women, a lot of women were lynched, putting black men mostly back in subjection as they were in slavery. If you take a look at a lot of those lynchings, um, where Billie Holiday called strange fruit hanging from trees, necks elongated, bodies uh, decap, well, the, well, the ropes are decapitating the heads mm -hmm. of, of black bodies, right. where their bodies are rotting, where they're becoming bloated, where their bodies are then becoming uh, uh, just cut up and just just completely, completely, complete, completely treated inhumanely, okay? But with all of that, Will, in those historical pictures, you see white citizens in their Sunday's best. Keep in mind, this is a time period where people didn't dress up because they only had one, maybe two pairs right. of dress clothing right. or overall because we were still in an agricultural society. But they were in a Sunday's best, right. standing under this tree where, some, where a black man or woman is being uh, was, was lynched, and they're with their children, smiling. Taking pictures, essentially taking you know, that, that generation's version of the selfie. You know, there you go. Pr exactly. proud, of what, you know, proud of what they're doing. So, Will, take all of that knowledge, take all of that history that we just discussed, Wrap that up into the anger now that boils up because we, we know what happens with mob mentality, right? Mob mentality uh, where someone throws something, everybody's going to pick up and throw something. Someone says something, everyone's going to say the same thing. Right. Someone in that crowd mentioned Black Wall Street. Those blacks or whatever derogatory words they would say think they're somebody. They have more money than us, good white folks. And they went down there and according to Mrs. Viola Fletcher, who was seven years old, mm. she said every day of her life, for the last mm. 100 years, she hears the screams. Wow. She sees the black bodies in the street. 
She see men being pulled from their houses, shot and killed. She see white, white men from the white mob burning down businesses and houses. She said, history may have forgot. She said, but she could not forget because she hears it and relives it every single day. Over 300 so far. All right. Trust me, we believe there is more, much more. But over 300 so far were murdered. Property, all property destroyed. Not one piece of property was left uh, undamaged. Over 10,000 were homeless and not one and they were buried in a mass grave. The survivors were kept under gun point while they put them in the mass grave. Right. They dared anyone to say anything about it or they would meet that same end. Not one business, not one family, not one generation was compensated for the loss of their business, which was in her in her uh, uh, mind, in which she said, it was her ability in order to have the American dream. It was taken away from her. Right. That's what it's right. all about. And, you know, and the thing about it is that you can see the pattern of how these incidents happen and then how they spread. So, for example, you talked about rumors circulating. Well, the front page of the Tulsa Tribune, like newspaper, right? You see the play, how the media uh, spreads this information. It's reported that police had arrested Roland for sexually assaulting the woman, right? So now, so now you've got, so what happens is now you've got the justification for what you already want to do, because what you talked about was pointed out is so significant that what was really going on here is that there were folks who wanted to burn down Black Wall Street before this incident happened anyway. So now this becomes the catalyst. This becomes the justification. So you see the role of the media, right? Spreading the fake news, spreading the rumors. Then you get people gathering around and justifying, you know, their behavior and what they want to do. And and in those times, you had very much uh, angry mob mentality, as you talked about, the lynch mobs, vigilanteism that goes on. So when you read about this and when you see the footage, it easily starts to bring to mind, unless you just unless you just want to totally be in denial, how can you not begin to see the mentality of what happened here in the nation January 6th? Yeah. You know, the 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 insurrection, the run on the um on the Capitol building. Because what happened here, there was actually a run on the National Guard Armory. So you see the media fuels it. It becomes this breakdown, this anarchy, this this belief that we are above the law. We are above the government. And in fact, we can do what we want and the government will actually support in what we were doing. So what the accounts actually show is that a lot of people, a lot of whites were actually deputized. Right. So they were sanctioned to do what many people actually already wanted to do, which was to destroy the community. And so it just brings to mind how you see these patterns, you see the how it develops. And then unless you just totally um, want to be in denial about living in this country, how can you not see the similarities 
to the to the issues and the things that we face today. Something happens, people make assumptions, the media goes and chases it, and buy, and and now we have social media. It's the right? It is no where there's even less context of what is um, <laughs> actually going on and what actually happened that fuels you know the oh, hysteria. Oh, okay. Can we actually call it media then? I mean that that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> Without, well, I mean, these these are the times that we're in. But unless we, what is teaching us is that the undercurrent of racism continues to be pre- prevalent, absolutely, in the nation, and is always there, ready to be brought up, whether to be ready to be stirred up. And if we don't address it, we will continue to have uh, these kinds of, um, you know, this kind of unrest, this kind of uh, madness, this kind of hysteria. But we'll also want to point out that this was not just an isolated incident. I mentioned, of course, the Scottsboro Boys, um, uh, the Supreme Court case that took place. But we have another anniversary coming up, January 1st through the 7th, 1923. A very similar accusation, which was unfounded. Another self-sufficient town where African-Americans own property. African-Americans basically were able to uh, own and and create the jobs, and they were self-sustaining. And that's the city of Rosewood, Florida, Mm -hmm. which, of course, a movie was created and and brought attention to it. Uh, But it didn't really get the momentum about 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 social justice and the injustice of that time. The exact same thing happened. There was a black drifter who was accused of assaulting a, a white woman, and what ended up happening is they ended up <laughs> killing uh, almost thirty people. Now, was, the course is reported maybe six at the time, but people believe it's much higher. But whites, but whites and blacks were killed. All right, so they fought back, you know. But we're talking nineteen twenty three. Tulsa was nineteen twenty one. We're talking two and a half years, you know, distance from these two events. So we see now, Will, that. What took place and what was in the minds and the hearts of the people in Tulsa was not an isolating incident. It was in the minds and the hearts of white Americans across the country. If we're looking at history and telling the truth about it and not trying to re-explain history, we're going to talk about that in another, another segment. So 100 years later, <laughs> Tulsa massacre, not one apology. Not one dime, I'm going to even go a little further, not one penny of compensation. Finally, the truth is coming out. They're using uh, high-definition technology for searches of mass graves, which they think they found one by the banks of of the river. Um, And to this day, there was a bill put forth in the Oklahoma legislature to include this in Oklahoma history. Right. Well, what do you think happened? Well, uh, I'll let you tell it. You know, shock me to say that it actually did pass when I know that it it, it did. The bill failed. <laughs> the bill failed. The Oklahoma legislature did not want this history taught in schools. Let's just let's let's just let's just digest that for a couple of seconds. The national news, the congressional testimony, 
the truth about what truly happened. The lies pulled up by probably microfish now uh, from the newspapers of that time, exposed. All of these aspects and the reckoning with social injustice, all these aspects of our history. And still, you have a legislative body that denies it. Why is that? Well, they would say that, you know, they, it, one of the things that they did say was that the the, student, the school's students are already teaching, you know, about the riot, that it wasn't necessary. It is part of um, the curriculum. Um, there are history classes. But clearly this not going forth and really making it a, a pivotal point in history is a part of the movement to really not fully come to grips with um, this type of history, these types of incidences that have happened, you know, throughout the country. So there's this resistance, like you said, we're going to talk about it more. We see that still very much at play now. There's this resistance to really go back and be honest about what has happened. And quite frankly, it's really important to, to connect these dots because the first thing that people will say is that that was then, um, People living now, children now, were not a part of that that happened. Times have changed. But the thing that's really important to understand about this is how the ability to build wealth was so destroyed by, for for example, by this incident. Like, for example, it's one of the you know articles I read, we talked about the um, black press at the time, the black newspaper at the time, the family that owned it. Paper was burnt down. And so that imagine if that family, prosperous media company, and you fast forward to now what that company potentially could have been. Maybe that could have been Johnson Publishing or BET or CNN or Time Warner. You know, so what you've had that has been lost is so many businesses and so many opportunities to build wealth, so many opportunities for land to appreciate in its value and be passed down to next generations is something that has been lost. And these are the types of things and why it's important to teach this topic, mm-hmm. to teach about what has happened and how people continue to be impacted today. We've got to teach and connect the dots. And unfortunately, I've been a, I've been a promote, prom, proponent. You've heard me talk about this on radio and on shows many times about how we really need a deep dive in this country to do honest, anti-racism education, not for the purpose of making some people feel bad and others feel better about themselves, but for the purpose of really understanding the systems and understanding uh, the behaviors and the policies and how they really affect people's lives in real concrete ways. And unless we really understand that, unless we really um, do that in the education systems, do that. It, it, it's You can't expect it to bleed into the homes. It's the education systems and the churches are two of the play, key places where it really, has to, it really has to be done if you're going to make a difference in society. So, Will, what's the solution and, and today as it relates to Tulsa, Oklahoma? Because a lot of times when we go to African-American communities and Tulsa, Greenwood district is mm-hmm. no different, um, we see MLK Boulevard, 
Mm-hmm. The, the only positive thing about a lot of MLK Boulevards is the names name is always his name MLK Boulevard. Yeah, right. A lot of yeah. times we see dilapidation, we see abandoned buildings, we see a lot of poverty, and which is the exact opposite of what King was fighting for. Mm-hmm. And he actually was fighting for economic upper mobility uh, prior to that, prior to his death. Right. So, you know, Greenwood is no different. You know, it was, there's also, uh, you know, a history where it looks at how it was rebuilt, but then in the 70s, but it's being taken away due to gentrification. Right, urban Uh, renewal, yeah. Right, which is gentrification, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So with that being the case, I mean, we probably have not seen African-American communities like Greenwood like Rosewood and like other small towns, mm-hmm. uh, some in the north. Uh, you got in Michigan, you got um, a group of African-American black blueberry farmers that own massive amounts of land and grow blue parrots. I mean, these are people who basically found freedom, their, their forefathers, and they stayed on that land and they still farm that land. A lot of black farmers who actually got a lot of help in this last stimulus and got noticed for their discrimination. So a lot of there's a lot of African American communities, pockets now of African American, I should say that, that are prospering and have the American dream. However, African American communities with a business district like Black Wall Street and others that existed during that time period, we have not seen those in decades. I can't I I, I remember an area in my my city where you saw black businesses. I lived in one of those neighborhoods. Right. But my children, I can't take them to that right now, right? Now, there are parts of cities that went through urban renewal, but it's what's called mixed use, right? The African-American business persons don't really own a lot of that property, but they're in, or they're not the majority owners in that district. Yeah, I think it depends. Like you said, I think it depends on where you're at in the country. I mean, I know in a D.C., DMV Maryland uh, Maryland area, you will see opportunities of of black prosperity and and like you said, areas where you have black businesses and doing well. I think the solution is very much uh, it's not a simple um, do one, not the other solution. We need policy, we need laws, we need you know moral uplift. But I think we absolutely need a keen focus on economic development and entrepreneurship. Absolutely. I think that that is the model of what Tulsa, Black Wall Street, Greenwood taught us. And it continues to teach us is that, look, we've got to develop businesses. And where we're at with through all the pain and sorrow that has happened, we still have access to the broader economic system, which is even an international system, now that we did not have at those times. Like, for example, it wasn't as easy. It wasn't even imaginable for some people to say, I'm just going to buy stock in this company or that company. So we have access to the economic system. It's not perfect access. It's by no means there's still significant barriers. But we have access that we did not have previously. And so we need to take advantage of that access. So we need to view ourselves, for example, as looking at 
something as simple as the type of cell phone that you use and saying, if I'm spending money on this cell phone carrier, don't you think I should also be owning stock in the cell phone carrier? I mean, you, you, I mean, you had the ability to do that. That did not exist, you know, in 1921 to be able to do something like that as a black person. You had the ability to buy homes in a lot of areas that were absolutely, um, whether you had the resources or not, that were blocked off. So we had the ability to not only just buy homes that we live in, we had the ability to purchase homes and to use those as rental properties that provide housing for other people and secondary income to build wealth. So I think we've got to look at how can we go forward to our best selves instead of looking back and saying, we want to go back to way to the way something was. We need to look back at the lessons and go forward to the way we can be better because we have access because of that kind of pain and the suffering that has happened to our forefathers before us. We have access at this time that we didn't have before. And this pandemic has created some resets. This pandemic, in all of its pain, there's always in a pain, there's there's an opportunity, there's, there's a promise coming if you take advantage of it. And so this pandemic has created some resets in a number of different areas that if people look carefully and position themselves, you can get in and you can gain an advantage and build wealth for your, for your family and the community in which you live. Absolutely. Absolutely. And well, I want to give a, and before we end, I definitely want to give some information about that, that piece that I mentioned in Oklahoma legislature. Remember, on LaVisa and Cabrillo, we like to give you facts and we like to clarify in case there, there's an issue. But in 2020, Senate bill passed requiring teaching of the Tulsa race history by Senator Julie Eason McIntyre and also Representative Jamar Schumann. Now, the opposition to that, it went to the House chamber, but the opposition to it is that it's already in the history books. Mm-hmm. But the key to that bill is that it's not required to be taught. It's mm-hmm. optional. And most teachers don't teach it. So that bill went there for it to require that it be taught. Okay. So school districts had to ensure the information was presented in high school courses in U.S. history or Oklahoma history. And the measure would become effective and it did July 1st of that particular year back in Excellent. That's good facts. That's good facts. So, so I, I wanted to, and that was that that particular information I read was updated August 2020. Uh, you can go to TulsaWorld.com. It talks about it, but that article showed up in March of 2012, which came, which that bill would have become effective that July 1st of that day. So, I wanted to go back and make sure that our listeners heard that information and that they saw it and ensure that they have the information to make sure they know uh, what. The information is out there. So you can also track that bill in the uh, Oklahoma legislature as well. So I, I want to end as we close this session, because it's a very good session. We can talk about this for, <laughs> for hours. I want to end with really discussing uh, what's reparations. You know, we've talked about reparations. What, what can we offer a family, siblings that's 107 and 100 years old? And someone else who's 106. What can we offer that offer them now 
And what can we offer those generations that lost everything at the hands of mob violence? Well, you're asking me what, what you yeah. want me to say, what we can offer them now? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've got to ask them. I mean, they've got to be able to say what it is they want. I would imagine that what someone who's, you know, a centenarian would want uh, opportunity, liberty for their grandchildren, for their descendants. I think they have seen so much and been through so much yeah. that they don't want to see another generation of, yeah. of their people having to go through what they've gone through. So I would imagine that the things that we've talked about, that those are the kinds of things that they would want to see, that we'd be, be able to live, have life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And I think as we were talking about it, economic development, like what um, Black Wall Street represents is really what we need to go back so that we can go forward to. Absolutely. Well, with that, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to listen to LaVisa and Khalil, where we bring it to you straight, uh, just like it is. Feel free, follow us on our social media, like, share, follow on our Facebook page, all on the social media as well. If you have any questions, please comment. Let us know what you think about this session and others. Until next time, according to Louise Hankerville, that's the way it is. We'll see you.